Lord, thank you that we can gather in song today and gather to worship you as we turn our attention to your word. Be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I was up here leading the dedication with Deanna and Sarah, I realized that the lights weren't set on to church setting. And so I thought that in that last song, I would do so. I thought I could do it quickly, quietly, and without distraction. I was wrong. Paul's away on holidays this week and next week, and evidently that's his job and not mine. And so once in training, I was taught how to do this. I thought, this, this can't be that hard. Evidently, I was wrong. It's much more complicated than I anticipated. And so as I started to touch buttons, I realized I had no clue what I was doing. And uh, I was pressing a button that said church because that made sense to me. But it actually is Sunday that I should have been touching. There's a button that says Sunday. So if you're ever at that board doing that, it's Sunday for Sundays. Get rid of the glare. But then once that happened, I didn't realize that there was another button that turned these lights on, which is why I should not have touched anything. I don't know what your fears are. What's something you fear? I mean, lots of people fear lots of different things. Some people fear financial calamity. Some people fear their children disowning them. Some people fear heights. I mean, next weekend I'll be up north with a group of friends. We've gone up north for, you know, I don't know, 30 some odd years um, to the same spot. Uh, and there's a couple of cliffs we can jump off. And when I turned 40, I was banned from the cliffs by my wife because she wanted me to come home safely. But the one cliff is 43 or so feet. The other cliff is just over 70 feet. And you jump off of the, the cliffs into Lake Joseph. It's a lot of fun. But I don't know what you fear. I mean, some people fear toilet paper running out in a public washroom. They just fear that. A lot of you do. I heard the giggles there, right? We fear all kinds of things. Esau, sorry, Jacob, feared meeting his brother Esau. We've been going through Genesis, and we've gone through Genesis. We're in the account of Jacob and Esau. They are the children, of course, of Isaac and, and, and uh, Rachel, and as, and as God, Isaac and Rebekah, and as God uh, blessed them with the twins, it was told, foretold that the younger would serve the older, that Jacob would actually uh, be the one who would rule over Esau. Esau would serve Jacob. But Jacob takes things into his own hands, and as Jacob takes things into his own hands... He want, at one time when Esau comes in saying he's starving, he kind of goes at taking his birthright from him through deceitful means. Then again through deception, he goes to his dad claiming that he's his brother Esau. Jacob does this and steals his brother's birthright. He then flees for 20 years, seven years serving for who he thought was Rachel, ended up with Leah being deceived by his uncle Laban. And then seven more years for Rachel, though he married Rachel one week after he'd married Leah. And this becomes incredibly complicated, right? Then Paul took a sermon, Pastor Paul, where, of course, the 11 of 12 kids are born of the tribes of Israel, but he's still Jacob. Jacob then decides he wants to leave, right? He goes to Laban. Laban's like, no way, serve me. Serves another six years. God grants him a great deal of, of cattle and and sheep, and donkeys, and just a great abundance. He takes off in the middle of the night. Laban catches up with him. What are you doing? You took my kids and my grandkids away without me being able to say goodbye. And by the way, God told me not to say anything good or bad to you, which also means God is very clear. Don't do anything to harm him. In the middle of all that, God tells Jacob, speaks to him, probably for the first time, 
um, when he's, after he served uh, Laban for 20 years, that he is to go back and that God will be with him. But he's had a hard time trusting God. He's had a hard time believing that what God has said is real. He so fears his brother Esau now, first Laban and now Esau, that he's just got a rough go of trusting God. And so now he's heading back, and he's heading back from Laban to meet his brother Esau, who he deceived, who he stole his birthright from, and he's actually terrified. And I don't know about you, but I know about me that I can be slow to learn life's lessons. I can be slow to learn, learn life lessons, learn, learn things in my marriage, learn things about my walk with God. I mean, at times as I've struggled with anger in our marriage and tried to work on it, it's something that I can find myself again coming back to. Things are going awry in the house and I become angry about something, whatever that would be. Often it's about what I was planning or thinking or doing, even if it was together with a family, that's running amiss that I become frustrated and angry, angry about. So I can be slow to learn. I, I can be slow to learn about our marriage. I know I have a strong, dominant personality. In fact, this week we were driving, so I don't remember where we were driving, and Amy was talking about people that have strong, dominant personalities, and because she's introverted, how she can only take so much of them at one time. And she was talking about how, how hard it is sometimes with people with strong, dominant personalities, and you can only take them in bite-sized chunks. And I said, what, what about me? Oh, she said, you work a lot, so I'm thankful that I, you only kind of come home in bite-sized chunks, so it's very doable in our marriage. I was like, what? But that's, right? And I've tried over the years to learn in my strong, dominant personality in the home to, to not be that way. What, what does it mean to, to be very different in that? And then it's true with most of us in our walk with God. In the way we live, in the way we serve, in the way we love, in the way we forgive others, in the way we battle things like bitterness, the way we raise our children, the way we treat our finances, that we are slow to learn to trust God. And that is Jacob. That is Jacob. God is now, for the, as far as we know, for the first time uh, uh, has, has spoken to him, though he saw him in a, in a dream, in the image of the, of the angels walking up and down the ladder, Jacob's ladder. Uh, and, and God has said to him, Jacob, I want you to know I am with you. He said, I, I am with you. And that my presence is with you. And yet this is what happens. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 32 and 33, it's a bit of reading today as we've been going through Genesis. Genesis 32, verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named the place Menahim. Jacob sent messengers out ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. Just pause there for a moment. A couple of things about this text here. Jacob is going. He's on his way. He's just left Laban. And angels of God meet him. We don't know how. That's all we have is that sentence. Angels of God met with Jacob. And Jacob sees them and says, this is God's camp. God is here. And he gives the place a name. So God is simply reminding Jacob as he goes that God is with him. And the angels show up. Jacob, in this case, this isn't always true in Scripture, Jacob is able to recognize the angels as angels, as such, as messengers from God. He's thankful that they're there, gives the place a name, and he continues to move on. 
But as he does so, it's important to note that God has granted him the provision of angels, reminding him that God is with him. That God is with him. Do you know that wasn't just true then, but it's true today? I mean, we're in a spiritual war. We're actually in a spiritual battle. Satan doesn't want you to follow God. Satan wants your soul. You know that, right? Satan wants you to be able to renounce your faith. He wants you to be able to walk away from God. He wants you to think that the things of the kingdom of God are not important, are not essential, are not critical. Satan wants you to convince you that you don't need the word of God, that you don't need to pray to God, that you don't need fellowship. Satan wants to convince you that church is arbitrary, that's something that you could choose to be a part of or not to choose to be a part of, whatever that is like. People will come to me all the time, even now coming out of the pandemic, and say, Dwayne, I don't need church. I'm like, do you know that the book of Acts, the book of Revelation, is written about God's people being together? It is the largest portion of the New Testament. And Satan wants to defeat us. Simply wants to do that. Wants to convince us that what? is true, is lie, because he's a liar. And so we're in a spiritual war. We're in this battle. It ensues. And God, like he did for Jacob, grants angels even to this day. Do you know that? Angels are part of God's spiritual warfare. Last week and this week, I've been meeting with the Karen Young men. I do it Sundays after our service. Last week, I think there was like 13, and then the group has exploded. We had two uh, two baptisms last Sunday afternoon. Uh, one of the young men and one of the young women uh, from the Karen congregation who are also worshiping with us here um, at James North. And as I've been going through Ephesians, I'm now in the armament of God. And so last week and this week, we're looking at God's armor. What does it mean in Ephesians 6 that we're to put on the full armor of God? And it's clear in Scripture that God grants angels. I mean, Daniel's praying. His prayer, God's answer to his prayer, is somehow intercepted by a demon, and an angel goes and does battle against the demon to get the answer of the prayer that Daniel's prayed, delayed three weeks. You ever read that in Daniel? Is that not fascinating? It happens all the time. In fact, what does Jesus say in Matthew 18? In Matthew 18, when Jesus is talking about, the disciples come to him and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. Unless you become like a little child, you cannot be a part of my kingdom. And then he goes on to say that you're not to cause anyone who is entering the kingdom like a little child to ever stumble. When he talks about little ones there, he's not talking simply about children. He's talking about those that are entering into the kingdom of God. He says, if you cause them to stumble, it would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you be thrown into the bottom of the sea. He says, don't despise these little ones. What does he say next? Their angels in heaven see the face of my father. Their angels in heaven see the face of my father. That's where we get the concept of guardian angel from. The idea there. Now, of course, we understand that God's spirit, if you're a believer, is in us. God's spirit is the one who does the predominant spiritual warfare on behalf. But it's very clear that God also sends ministry angels. I mean, I have whole sermons I preached here previously on spiritual warfare that includes God's, whole sermons on God's assistance to us via angels. So we have these angels that show up to Jacob and a reminder that God is with him. But then what does Jacob do? He takes matters into his own hands. What's he do? He instructs the messengers as I go to Esau, this is what you're to say to my Lord Esau. Jacob's got it all wrong. Jacob is actually the one that Esau should be calling Lord. 
Your servant Jacob says, he says, call me servant to Esau. Jacob's got it all wrong because he took everything into his own hands instead of trusting God to do what God would do. He just jumped in on his own. He just acted on his own. Verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, man, we went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. 400 men are with him. Jacob, not good news, man. Esau's coming. He's got 400 men. What does that mean? This isn't like, this is like they're seeing 400 warriors. 400 warriors are on their way to meet you, and this is not good. In great fear and distress, verse 7, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, that other group is left to escape. So again, what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. Two angels have just shown up to remind him that God is with him, to remind him that he's not alone, to remind him that the promises of God is with him. Two angels have just shown up to do that. Right after that, he says, hey, let's go scout. Then after that, he says, oh, 400 men. He's afraid. He's terrified. So what does he do? He starts to devise a plan. Let's divide my group into two groups so that if we're attacked, one group might escape. Where's the trust in God? I mean, I mean we can think of Jacob and say, well, why would you do this? But isn't this our lives? Isn't this how we live? I mean, the scriptures are clear to us, right? As clearly as God has spoken to Jacob, God has spoken to us, right? God's writing us a book about fellowship, about honoring him with our wealth, about the cross. And how often have we just been in a setting where we worship God, where we've, where we've been in a place where we'd be like, wow, God's met with me, and then we dishonor him. We actually just kind of step away like Jacob, and we take matters into our own hands. Well, note what happens next. Verse, verse 9. Then Jacob prayed. Is that not interesting? Then Jacob prayed. So Jacob continues to take matters into his own hands, his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own, whoo, like I got this. Then Jacob prayed. What's the first thing we should do? The first thing we should do is come before God in prayer. The first thing we should do is show our dependence on him. The third, first thing we should do is cry out to him. But so often it's the last thing we do. Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers and their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. This is a great prayer. He comes before God and he says, God, I got nothing. The first thing he does is he claims the promises of God. Did you catch that? God, you said. God, you told me. God, you declared. That's really important. You can declare back to God the things he's promised to you. Sometimes it's important just to reiterate them in spiritual warfare so the demonic realm that hears you, right? Demons can't read your minds. I'm not saying de demons can't influence your minds, but they cannot read your minds. Only God can read your mind. 
This is one of the things I went over extensively with the Karen young men last week. Because so often we get confused about what demons can do and can't do. Satan is a fallen creature. He's an angel who fell. He's a created being. He's not godlike. And so we declare the promises of God out loud. So the demons can even hear them in spiritual warfare. God, this is what you said. We're reminding ourselves also. I mean, God hasn't forgotten his promises. We're reminding ourselves also, God, this is what you said. And then we remember our place, right? Jacob does this really well. He remembers his place. What does he say? I am unworthy. God, you've shown me kindness. You've shown me faithfulness. I mean, last week we looked at those verses, right? In, in, in Genesis 31, where Jacob takes it says to Laban, hey, I'll take all the streaked and speckled animals. You take all the unspotted ones. Then he goes by some ritual superstition of the day where if he put certain leaves in front of them, when the animals mated, they would have speckled or spotted animals. Now, in this case, they did. Why? Because God was gracious. The superstition didn't work. Superstitions don't work. They're ridiculously stupid. That's what superstitions are. They're ungodly and unbiblical. Can I even suggest they're demonic? That's what superstitions are. When you believe in a superstition, you're simply believing in that which the enemy wants you to believe instead of trusting in God. Because you live your life based on what you can or can't do with ladders or cats or I won't go on. And that whole portion of Genesis 31 is absent of any language of God until Jacob says what? God blessed me. And he realizes God's hand was with him. So he says, I'm unworthy. You've shown me kindness and faithfulness. I am your servant. I came here with a staff. I'm leaving with two camps. He just reminds himself of the faithfulness of God, which we need to do so often. We recount it like I've talked about through Genesis, building altars at time to remind us where we've seen God work. And then we cry out to God for what? Salvation, save me, God. I can't do this. My brother's coming to attack. He's got 400 men. And he actually doesn't say his brother's going to attack. He said, I'm afraid he's going to attack. And then attack the women and their children, our children. But he says, God, you've promised to make my descendants like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted. So he spends the night there, verse 13. From what uh, he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ooze, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys, now, you might wonder, why all the numbers? Like, why does God care that we know the specifics of what was going from Jacob to Esau? Here's why. Jacob is trying to give the blessing back to Esau to save his life. The blessing that he took, he's now trying to give back. He's saying, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you with so much that you're going to realize that I'm blessing you with more than you would have been blessed with had you been blessed with the blessing that I took from you. Because he realizes that the blessing he took from him, though God would have given it to him, he took in a way that God didn't give to him. He put them in his, the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me, keep some space between the herds. Then he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, what, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all the animals in front of you? And, and you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift to my lord Esau. And he is coming behind us. Again, notice servant and lord again in the wrong way. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who follow the herd. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. 
be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us, for he thought I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. So he sent his gifts ahead of him. He spends the night in the camp. But again, what's he doing? He's prayed to God. Did God ask him to do this? No. He takes matters into his own hands continually. I mean, don't we do that? I mean, I, I've talked about prayer and praying to God first. Some of us do pray to God first. And then instead of waiting for an answer, instead of listening to the voice of God, we just take matters into our own hands. That's what Jacob does. He's just like, I've prayed. Now I'm just going to go do it. And what does he do? He sends a gift, pause, a gift, pause, a gift, pause, a gift, right? Like Esau's like, oh, what's this? Celebrating that gift. Oh, there's more. Celebrating that gift. Hey, there's more. I mean, it's like Christmas when you get a box and you open the first box. It's not the one where you open up 10 boxes and something's on the inside of the last box. You open the first box and there's like, you know, a gift. But there's another box. You open the next box and there's like a gift. You're like, this is really good. You open the next box and there's another gift. And you're like, this is like maybe the best gift I've ever gotten because it's a gift within a gift within a gift. And then you open up the next box and there's another gift. And you open up the last box and there's even more. And you're like, wow, this is something else. Then Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the Jordan, or crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He had sent them across the stream. He sent them over all of his possessions. He sent over all of his possessions, but he stayed there alone. So now he sends everyone. He's by himself. First he sent all of his servants, all of his, all, all of like his, his livestock, and they're on their way to Esau, a whole bunch of gifts. He obviously kept some for himself. Then he sends his wives and his children and his servants, the rest of them that are there, and the rest of the livestock that he has, and he's alone. So Jacob was left alone with a man, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched, and he wrestled with the man. The man said, let me go, it is daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans you have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? He blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So the sun rose as he passed Peniel. He was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And we all say, what? Right? Are every together, like, what? I mean, who is this man? Why did he have to leave at daybreak? How did Jacob overpower him? What is this with the diet that's not even in the law somewhere? Like, what? Like all this is here. The Jews not eating meat attached to the, 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 the uh, tendon uh, or to the socket of the hip, that's not even in the law. And yet it says that they do it to this day. And this day meaning when Moses is writing this. So what's going on here? Well, Jacob is at the threshold of entering the promised land. God chooses to meet him. God graciously chooses to meet him. This is a theophany, right? I'm not going to call it a Christophany. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that it's, it's Jesus himself pre-incarnate showing up, but it's definitely God in some way showing up. Jacob recognizes that. They wrestle. Probably not like, you know, what you see on TV. Not exactly sure, though. 
Maybe, maybe they were up on some ring. Maybe God created a mat. I don't know. I'm certainly, I'm fairly certain not. And they wrestle. And they wrestle all night. And did you catch what happens? Jacob has wrestled the man down. And the man says, let me go. It's daybreak. The man wants Jacob to think he can win. And, and, and they engage in this conversation. What is your name? Jacob, he said. Now the man knew Jacob's name. You're no longer Jacob. You're going to be Israel. He renames him. Jacob says, tell me your name. But he doesn't. He just blesses him. And then he touches his hip and gives him a limp. Why? To let him know that he was powerless the whole time against the person he was fighting against. To let him know that he needs to depend on that person. Because Jacob, like us, is slow to learn. Right? God showed up to him very specifically and said, leave the house of Laban. Go back home. I mean, first we have the ladder of the angels ascending and descending. And God offering him the promise there. The first time he speaks to, to Jacob that we know of in his life. There at the ladder where angels are ascending and descending. And he promises to make him a great nation. And then God speaking to him at Laban's house 20 years later. As far as we know, not having spoke to him through that time. And at the end of 20 years saying, you are to leave. I am with you. Then two angels showing up. To remind him, Jacob, knowing they're angels, that God is with him. And Jacob continues through this the entire time to take everything into his own hands and matters into his own hands. He only prays after he's taken matters into his own hands. Then he doesn't wait for the answer to prayer. He just goes and does what he wants. And God shows up and says, I've had enough of this. I'm going to teach you to depend on me. And you're going to wrestle me as if you can beat me, as if you know what's better than me, as if you could defeat me. But at the end, I'm going to dislocate your hip, and you're going to walk with the limp because I'm going to show you that I am God and you are not. I'm him. You're not. And you're now going to walk with the limp so that you understand the dependence that you have on me. And I have no clue what's up with the diet. I don't know. No one knows. I read pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of speculation this week. And I tell you this, no one knows. It just is what they chose to do for a season. We just leave it at that. But at the threshold of him entering into the land of promise, God appears to him to remind him that he's powerless without God and dependent upon him, leaving him with the limp. And then importantly, he takes his name Jacob, which means heel catcher or supplanter. One who catches the heel because he was grasping Esau's heel on the way out as the twins were born. Follower or follow behind. That's the idea of his name. And he calls him Israel, which means preserves with God, triumphs with God. And now Jacob is limping. So imagine this. Jacob's terrified of Esau. Now he's limping. Chapter 33, verse 1. Jacob looks up. Because daybreak has just struck. And there is Esau coming. And now he can't run away. Now he can't even outrun his brother. Now he's walking with what? A limp. Because who's he got to depend on in this moment? God. But he still takes things into his own hands because he's so slow to learn like us. He sees Esau coming with his 400 men. He divides his children among Leah, Rachel, his two female servants. These are the two female servants that gave birth to some of his children, right? He put the female servants and their children in front. Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the, in the rear. He himself went on ahead. He bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. 
And so here you have Jacob, and I mean, this unfortunately shows one of the most horrific parenting moments in all of Scripture, where he shows his favoritism of his kids. We see that later when he blesses Joseph with the multicolored coat, but right here at this moment, what's he do? He puts the women he had, Leah and Rachel's uh, 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 maidservants that he had kids with at the front with their kids, and then Leah with her kids, and at the back of that, Rachel and Joseph. Is that not horrible? Now, it's Ethan's birthday today, and you are the oldest son, and if someone did come and attack us today, I would, after I defended them, throw you out in front of Amy and the girls, just so you know. It's got nothing to do with favoritism. It's got to do with the man up, boy. But that's not what, that's not at all. I mean, he's 20 now. Like, he's not even a teenager. Like, this is it. I just throw, thrust him in front of everybody. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll go first, right? So you can look after the family. Oh, you'd step out in front of me? Okay, maybe. Yeah, that's good. All right. Don't test it after. Don't test it. Um, but this is, what, this is what Jacob does, right? He just starts to thrust people out right? Now, in fairness, he goes first around to his brother. He bows seven times. And what happens? Did you hear this? Well, I haven't read it yet, but hear it. Esau runs to meet Jacob. He embraces him. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. They weep. Esau looks up, and he sees the women and children and says, who are these with you? Jacob answers, these are the children God has graciously given your servant. And the female servants and the children approach them, bow down, and next Leah and her children, and last of all, Joseph and Rachel, they bow down. And Esau said, what is all the meaning of the flocks and herds I met to find favor in your eyes, my Lord? Esau says, I have plenty. I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, said Jacob, if I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For Jacob has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because of Jacob's insistence, Esau accepted the gifts. Did you see what happened here? I mean, Jacob was trying to pacify Esau with all the gifts he was sending on ahead. That's not what happened, that's not what occurred. Jacob then bows down before him seven times to pacify his brother. That's not what pacified Esau. Did you hear what Esau did? Esau, regardless of any type of cultural protocol, Esau runs to his brother, grabs a hold of him, embraces him, hugs him, kisses him, because somewhere along the line in these 20 years, the Lord had dealt with his heart and he'd forgiven his brother. We don't know when. We don't know how. It wasn't because he had gifts. He, he was insistent. Keep the gifts. I don't want them. Keep the gifts. I don't want them. But because Jacob was more insistent and not to cause his brother shame, he took the gifts. God had changed his heart. Jacob didn't need. This is the whole point of the text. The two messengers show up to remind Jacob that God is with him. Jacob didn't need to send the gifts on ahead. Jacob didn't need to divide the camp in two. Jacob didn't need to show who his favorite kids were by spacing them out. Jacob didn't need to go ahead and bow seven times before his brother because God had already done his work in his brother's heart. God said he would look after him. God said he would be with him. God said he had this, but Jacob couldn't trust him. And he kept taking things back into his own hands. And he kept taking things back into his own hands. And I know I do it, and I know we do the same, don't we? We hear what God says. We know what he's told us. 
and we take matters into our own hands again and again and again. As if God had said nothing. As if his promises couldn't be kept. As if he was powerless and unable to walk with us. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll, 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 I'll accompany you. Come with me, brother. He's offering him hospitality. Brother, come, come hang out. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and I must care for the ooze and the cows and nursing their young. And if they are driven one more day, the animals will die. Let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and the herds and the pace of the children. I will come to you in Seir. Esau said, well, let me leave you some men. He's not trying to attack Jacob. He loves his brother. You see that in the text. He's graciously trying to help him. Let me leave you some men. Why do that, Jacob said. He still doesn't trust him. Just let me find favor in your eyes. So that day, Jacob started on his way. Esau, sorry, started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth. He went in the opposite direction. Because Jacob still doesn't trust the Lord. After all of that, after all of that, and he built a place for himself and he made shelters for his livestock. His brother offers him help, offers him hospitality. Jacob says, I'll do it, and he lies to him, and he goes another way. After Jacob came to Padamaram, he safely arrived at the city of Shechem and Canaan and camped there within sight of the city, a few hundred pieces of silver for that he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, a plot on the ground in which he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So what do we do with this? I mean, here we have Jacob. I'll just close in a moment here. God's met him on a ladder. While the angels showed him a vision of angels, ladder ascending, ascending, and promises he's with them. God speaks to him when he's leaving and says, I'm with you. Two angels show up to remind him he's with him. His brother lovingly and graciously breaks all protocols and runs out to him and embraces him. And he still does his own thing every step of the way with the exception of one simple prayer in the middle that he doesn't even wait for the answer for. God's going to teach Israel what it means to trust him. And it's going to be a hard lesson because his favorite son is going to disappear for decades. But God's going to teach him a lesson. Man, I hope that's not our lesson. Listen, four things as I close. We need to trust in God's word. We need to trust in God's word. What God has said is reliable. It's trustworthy. It's true. We need to trust in God's word. Number two, we need to cling to his promises God is faithful to his promises. Is that not good news? God is sovereign. He's orchestrating his plan through history because he's God. He's doing it. We can't always see it. We can't always understand it, but he's doing it. I mean, I saw this this weekend like never before. I mean, not, not never before, but vividly. Taking a family funeral. So Friday I go meet with the family, right? My dad's side, non-believers. Go meet with the family who are non-believers. Talk about their two parents who died, one previous to COVID, one during COVID. I'm taking both their funerals yesterday at the graveside, committal. But it was a 40-minute funeral, graveside committal, with lots of people coming and people invited back to the farm after for lots of, lots of treats. 
well, roast beef and chicken if you call that treats. And so that, that was a treat. And so there we are yesterday, and, 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 and I'm, I'm at the funeral, and I need to fast or backtrack earlier this week on Tuesday when I came in the office. I was told that there was a screaming three-and-a-half-year-old who was inconsolable at Cross Traders, who'd never been outside of, of, of his home before and into school, and his mom graciously came and picked him up Monday. On Tuesday, I'm sitting there hearing the screaming through our building, which is fairly soundproof, thinking this poor child is screaming so loud, and thinking to myself, maybe I should go see if I could talk to this kid. Like, what am I going to do when Diana, Derek, Deanna, and others are already doing this, right? But I think maybe I can help in some way because this is just deafening. Mom comes and picks up the kids. I'm there yesterday. The funeral's done. My aunt, who's near 80, comes to me, wonderful woman, her and her husband still in really good health, religious but not Christian, and talks about how much the service had spoken to her. And then we're back at the farm, and we're all sitting around eating, and my aunt says to me, you know, Chris, which is her granddaughter, Chris was bringing her three boys to day camp. And she says the youngest one, who's three and a half, was inconsolable and cried the whole time. So this is now my third cousin who's crying at our church. And the mom had to take him home. But the two older boys loved camp and came home talking about Jesus. And they want to go back again. And they're signed back to go another week. Because Chris's parents are best friends with Rod and Denise Switzer. That's Jordan and Andrew's parents who are part of our church family here. And God has a way, because my aunt said to me, I said to her, how did your great-grandchildren end up at our church this week? And she said, well, the Switzer family invited them. Because the Switzer family grew up in Bimbrook like I grew up in Bimbrook, out in that area. And God, in his mercy and plan, who is sovereign, can orchestrate whatever he wants to bring salvation. Is that not good news? God can take a family through generations and allow people to interact and engage in ways that are beyond my comprehension, beyond my planning, beyond my skill. And had I tried to orchestrate it, I would be not able to do so. But the sovereign hand of our God is, I've prayed for my family for years, week in and week out. I mean, this week fervently because I'm about to share in, a, in message and take funeral with so many non-believers in front of me. I mean, as far as I know, there were only three believers standing in front of me with dozens and dozens of people at the funeral. Outside, socially distant, with directors, I'm telling you. But God can do it. God can do it. And so I texted Jordan. I'm like, Jordan, who invited Chris and, and her kids? And I didn't know this. And Jordan's like, well, my sister's still best friends with her. Just like, just like my parents and your cousins are best friends, and we hung out as kids. Now my sister and Chris are best friends, and she invited Chris to come to our day camp. And God's hand works. He's sovereign. We trust in his word. We cling to his promises. We come to him first in prayer. And we listen for his answers. Kevin and Sarah, you guys come up and lead us as we close. So the question is, will you do that? I mean, here we have Jacob who at the end even wrestled with God. Had God rename him. And in his stubbornness still came up with his own plan. His own plan to take things into his own strategy instead of walking with God. And we do it 
over and over and over again. And maybe as we close today, we need to say, God, you are so gracious. God, you are so kind. And God, you've taught me lesson after lesson after lesson after lesson in my life. And some of them have been hard. God, would you help me to trust you more? Would you cause me to cling to your promises? Because I recognize I simply need you. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that we are slow to learn and slow to trust. I know I am. And yet, God, you are the ever-faithful one who is fully and completely dependable and trustworthy. May we grow in our trust of you. May we grow in our dependence of you. May we cling to your word and claim your promises, be dependent upon you in prayer, acting as we've heard from you and not in our own accord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.